We're going to hop into some scripture, scripture but before we do, um, let's take a little, here's some Bible trivia for you. What is the most important commandment? Who knows? Any Bible scholars out there? That's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then there's like an add-on. And the second is like it, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard that, that, that phrase before? Love your neighbor as yourself. If you've been around, um, I think just culture in general, that's also known as like a certain kind of rule. What rule is that? The golden rule. So good. The golden rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm like, that is my kind of rule. I can love people. I know how I want to be loved, and I can love people like that. But I think if we're honest, um, we have to recognize that there are limits um, to what the golden rule can do, right? Because if I'm honest with you, this is how I want to be loved. Leave me alone. I want my iPad. I want to read the paper. I want to watch Netflix and maybe have some kissing time with my wife, and that's it. That's how you can love me. The end. Right? The end. That's how, that's the love me. And so when I say love your neighbors yourself, you're like, that's pretty simple, right? Because you are the barometer. You're the benchmark of what does it mean to love somebody. And for the most of us, we love selfishly. We love the way that we want to love. We do the things that we want to do, and we hang around the people who make us feel good about ourselves, right? So when Kate and I were dating, we were young, we were babies, and, um, well, we felt like we were babies. We were 19 when we dated, but, um, she loved being around me. I loved being around her. We're like, this must be love. And so we were in love, right? We were golden. Well, about five years in, um, the way that you express love is at Christmas time, you give each other gifts. And about five years in, I think it was like our fifth Christmas, we realized there was a certain rhythm to our gift giving. And so Katie opens up her presents and she looks at this incredible gift I gave her and her shoulders kind of drop and she's like, lavender bath salts again? I'm like, Bed Bath & Body Works, when we were dating, you love this stuff. And so for every Christmas, for all of our dating, for all of our marriage, I went to Bed Bath & Body Works, you get three things for 20 bucks, and, uh, and I would give them to her, and she'd be like, have I ever taken a bath? I'm like, no, but you probably would want to, and if you did, it would be lavender. And, um, and so she's like, don't ever buy me something from Bed Bath & Bo uh, Body Works again. So I'm like, okay, great. So then I open up my presents, and, and I get towels, and I'm like, towels? What are you doing? She's like, no, it's for you and for us, and it makes our home so beautiful. And I'm like, no, you don't give the man of the house towels for Christmas. And, uh, and so we had like this little come to Jesus conversation. We're trying to figure out what does it really mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, thankfully, around that time, we came across this book called The Five Love Languages, and it helped kind of unlock this door that said, basically, don't, you don't love people the way that you want to be loved. You want to figure out the way that they receive love, and then you love them that way. So that felt like, that was like, that felt like, oh, we're becoming adults. We're becoming godly people because we're not just loving people the way we want to be loved. We're learning how to love the way someone else wants to be loved. So we take the little survey and Kay's like, oh, I'm acts of service. I'm like, sweet, I can do that all day. Acts of service. Mine's like, I'm words of affirmation. Great, I can do that all day. And away we go and we've lived happily ever after ever since. Been best marriage ever, right, Foof? <laughs> what? Oh yeah, it was a big towel. You're right, it was, it was incredible. <laughs> You're right, my bad. I'm wrong, again. Okay. So, love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to mature in that, it's to love somebody the way in which they want to be loved. But what we're going to talk about this morning um, 
takes that thing to a whole different level. We're in this uh, series about the pursuit of godliness. It's this idea that we run towards God. And as we run towards God, we're going to mature in our walk towards God. We're going to mature in our spiritual gifts, in our spiritual practices. And uh, we came up with this, this definition. The pursuit of godliness is becoming more and more devoted to God. And in that process, we're being it's in a transformed life that is more and more the us that we're made to be. And I love it because this movement towards God, it's a pursuit. It's a movement. It's becoming more and more of who we're made to be. And if we want to be more and more who we're made to be, and we want to express the life that God longs for us to be, then we want to be the people who love the way that Jesus invites us to love. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this morning, we're going to look at this idea of selfless love. And the idea of selfless love is that Jesus is inviting us into this mature type of love. So if the golden rule is love your neighbor as yourself, um, one of my favorite uh, preachers named Andy Stanley, he came up with this idea of the platinum rule. So uh, the, I guess platinum is better than gold. I don't have either. But platinum's better. And this is what the platinum rule is. The platinum rule comes from John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus says, a new command I give to you. So this is the end of Jesus' life. He's done his whole ministry. He gets to the end of his life. He's in the upper room, and this is the interaction he has with them. He, he gives a lot of teaching. He um, has, you know, has, the, 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 has communion, and then from here on out, he, this is the end of his life, and he goes, um, you know, goes before Pilate, is crucified, and dead, and raised. So that's where we are. And in this, in this time, this intimate time with his disciples, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another. This is where he changes it. As I have loved you so you must love one another. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is the platinum rule because this rule is no joke. Love your neighbor as yourself. I know what I need. I know what I like. I'm my benchmark. I'm good to go. But Jesus says, no, no, no. That was the golden rule, but this is the platinum rule. This is this is the final commandment. This is a new commandment that I give to you, that you are to love one another as I have loved you, as Jesus has loved us. That's how we're to love one another. And, and so what I did over these last couple of weeks is I, is I reread the Gospel of John. And if, if this is John's attempt to say this is what it means to know and love God, well, then how in the world did Jesus love people? And this morning, we'll look at five short examples. So um, what I need you to do is grab your bulletin. There's a place for notes, and you're just going to write one, two, three, four, five. And I uh, would love for you to think about, as we go through these five examples, think if there's someone in your life that God may be inviting you uh, to love better. So we start at the very beginning. We start um, in John. And uh, John, we're going to start right over in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, Jesus gives us his first example of loving others. And this is Jesus blessing other people. Now, when I was younger, this was my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, because this is the story where Jesus turns water into wine. How awesome is that? Especially if you're young, you're like, this is, this is, God thing is pretty awesome. Jesus, the Messiah, takes boring water and turns it not into wine, but into really incredible wine. And if you know this story, it's kind of a weird story because it feels like now, I mean, as I read the Greek, I'm trying to interpret what it's saying. And, and it, it, this is the impression that I have, not from Greek, but this is my impression. Mary got invited to this wedding. Jesus didn't want to be there 
right? This is, these are obviously Mary's friends. And uh, Mary's uh, at this party. That she knows the bride and groom. Jesus is there with his friends like, what am I doing here? You've, you've been dragged along at weddings. You know what this is like, right? And all of a sudden, G, uh, there's no more wine at the party and Mary's freaking out. There's no more wine. And she's like, mother, why are you bothering me with this, right? This is not for me. Like, obviously, this is Mary's deal. Mary's like trying to solve this problem for a friend. And Jesus is just like, leave me alone. But then he does this incredible thing. Jesus actually engages uh, and, and saves, this, saves the day. So here we are in John chapter 2, verse 8. Um, it says this. So, so then, he, so then um, so Jesus tells them to fill the jars with water. And they told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So, right, so he tells the servants to collect these water in these jars. Jesus, um, then he does whatever Jesus does over the water. And then he says, hey, now go send it on its way. So draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water and that would turn into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And they called the bridegroom and said, everyone brings the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Boy, that is an awesome, awesome message. Jesus turns water into wine. And it's so funny because I just think, why in the world did he do that? Now, later you realize he did that and the disciples looked at Jesus and were like, okay, you're someone worth following. You're wise, you're a good teacher, but this was his first miracle. So they're like, okay, there's something to you and we're going to follow you. But he could have done that in a million ways. And he did it in a way of turning water into wine. And then what he did is he, the, 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 the bridegroom had no idea where the wine even came from. Like Jesus didn't get any credit for that, for the bridegroom. And so I think of this idea that if we want to love the way that Jesus calls us to love, that we need to bless others behind the scenes. We all want to bless people and get credit for it. Like that's like our go-to move. Like that is what most of us want. But I think we want to love the way Jesus loves, that we want to be in the habit of blessing people without anybody knowing. So my family and I, when our kids were little, we just uh, spoiled them rotten. We just would buy so many presents. You know, at Christmas time, you're like, everything is on the shelf. You're just buying them tons and tons and tons of presents. And we realized we're going to make our kids spoiled rotten. So we're like, no more presents for these guys. So we said, we said, you know what we'll do? Let's take some of the money that we would spend on them and let's take that money and pull it. And then we'll buy Christmas presents for some family in our community and we'll go and we'll bless some other family. And so we had this idea and we talked to some friends of ours and they said, hey, we're gonna do the same thing too. And so we, we cut out some of the stuff we'd give to our kids. And then we brought our kids to Target with us. We had this, oh, we were such good parents back then. We're like, here's this teachable moment with our kids. You, you don't need all this stuff. And so you're going to help us buy these presents for these other, this other family. And we would go and we'd buy presents and we'd wrap them and we prayed together for these families. And then we would go and we would drive up to these homes and we would door, doorbell ditch them. You know, the kids would love it. They, they, they put everything on the, on the porch. They rang the doorbell and then we, we would drive away like no seatbelts because we had to get out of there. Our kids were like, yes, this is so awesome. But really, and, and what's so fun is we've been doing this for like 10 years now, and it's so fun to think that there's these people out there in our community that have no idea that a couple of families came together to just bless, bless the snot out of them. It's so fun. And it, and it is. It's, it's a thing that, that's a teachable moment for our kids. Jesus turning the water for the wine. It was a teachable moment for his disciples, but someone randomly got blessed. Like, they're, like that guy's wedding was so much better because Jesus blessed them. In the same way, we want to be people who are in the habit of blessing others behind the scenes. And so and number one, I would just love for you to think about who in your world, is there anybody in your world who has a simple need that you could simply meet? What's a need that you could meet without getting any credit for it and in a secretive, covert way that you could bless somebody behind the scenes? All right, that's number one. 
All right, we're going to keep moving along, and you get to um, example number two. So here we are in chapter four. And uh, what's incredible about uh, John chapter four is Jesus uh, is traveling uh, through, the, um, through the village of, uh, sorry, the region of Samaria. And if you know anything about your Bible, you know that Samaria is like, that's the least place you, you want to go if you're a good Jewish person. It's the, racially, it's different. Religiously, it's different. And if you're a good Jewish person, you're all about being clean and being orthodox and not having anything that's unclean be near you. And Samaria is full of unclean people, unclean religions, unclean everything. And Jesus walks through Samaria intentionally. And he sits down at this well in the middle of the day and he comes across this woman and she, it's a Samaritan woman. And he has this interaction with her. And if, if you know anything about, about the biblical times, like you don't go to the well in the middle of the day, right? In the desert, it's hot. People go to the well in the morning or in the evening. It's like a social thing to do. So if you're going in the middle of the day, that's because you do not want to see anybody. That's because your reputation, like, you, like even in your own community, no one wants to be with you. And so this woman is going to the well in the middle of the day and Jesus has this interaction with her. And, and he says this, the Samarit- so he starts talking with her and the Samaritan woman says to him, well, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And what's incredible about this passage of scripture, this is John chapter four, for one entire chapter, Jesus interacts with this Samaritan woman. He talks to her about her life. He talks to her about theology. His disciples come and are like, why are you talking to her? And he has to rebuke his disciples. And this woman then ends up going and telling her whole village about who Jesus is. Like this is this incredible encounter. And the way this incredible encounter started is because Jesus spends his political capital and his social capital on this woman who for her whole life is used to being unseen. In fact, she doesn't even want to be seen. Even in her own village, she doesn't want to be seen. And yet Jesus, who's a rabbi, he's a teacher, he's doing all these miracles, he's starting to gather this following, and he expends his political capital, his social capital to this woman to to give her life, to give her dignity, and ends up teaching her some incredible truths about Jesus. And so if we're people who want to love the way that Jesus loves, then we need to be people who recognize that we have a certain amount of social capital, a certain amount of political capital, and Jesus invites us to actually spend that on other people. I was thinking about this the other day with my wife, and we were thinking, man, who does this? And both of us came at the same time, like, you know who does this? Luke Hoy. Luke Hoy is this tall, gorgeous man. I, I have a man crush on him. He's incredible. He's one of our youth staff. And um, he works in the city. He is like this incredible human being. But what makes him super incredible is for some weird reason, he doesn't see status. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor or if you have tons of acne or you're the most popular kid at school. He sees you and he loves you. And he is such a gift to our high school program because he sees every kid without status. And he actually changes the temperature in the room because everyone is seen. It's an incredible gift. It is a hard thing. In fact, we had a hard time coming up with a list. I'm not going to lie, because so few of us actually don't see status or are willing to leverage our capital in that way. But if we want to love the way that Jesus loves, then we have to be people who spend our social capital. So who's someone in your sphere? Who's someone in your orbit that you might need to see, that God's inviting you to leverage some of your social capital, some of your political capital, to see them, to care for them, to add humanity to them. Who's that person? All right, number three, we're moving right along in, in the book of John, and now we're getting to John chapter 11. And, uh, and this is where we need to have empathy with those in crisis. If we're going to love Jesus, I mean, if we're going to love people the way that Jesus invites us to love, uh, loves us, then we have to have empathy for those people who are in crisis. 
Now, this is, a, this is a twofer because in John, I mean, John chapter 11, verse 35 is the best memory verse of all time. Jesus wept. Boom. You have now memorized scripture. You're in it. You're doing the Lenten deal. Jesus wept. But that passage of scripture, not only being like the easiest memory verse of all time, it's such an incredible verse because that verse is packed right in the middle of the story. The story that that's packed in the middle of is Jesus um, going to visit his uh, Mary and Martha. Um, he got word that his friend Lazarus had died. And Jesus finally gets to Lazarus's tomb. He's been dead for three days. He's been dead for three days and Jesus shows up and Mary and Martha are just distraught. All their friends are distraught. I mean, they are mourning and grieving because Lazarus must have just been an incredible man for Mary and Martha and Jesus. Like to be like a, a friend to those guys, you know, this guy was just incredible and he died. And Mary and Martha are upset and they're like, you know, if you could have been here, he wouldn't have died. And what's so funny is Jesus is like, I know. Like Jesus is like, I'm the son of God. If I was here, he wouldn't have died. He knows in a few verses, he's going to raise him from the dead. But, there, in, but between those two things, Jesus wept. Like Jesus had empathy. He didn't have to have empathy. He could have been like, Mary and Martha, where's your faith? What's wrong with you crazy women? That's not what Jesus did at all. Jesus has empathy. He actually engages his heart in heartfelt sorrow along with his friends. And empathy is a really costly thing. Sympathy is what, is what most of us do. We have friends who are in crisis, friends who are mourning, and we, we kind of pat them on the head. We give them a sandwich and we're like, I'm sorry. I'm going to pray for you. Good luck with that. I'll text you, see if y'all check in. Like, that's what we do. And, then we're, and we feel like we're good people because we're kind of like, you're going to be okay. But if we want to love the way in which Jesus loves, then we have to have empathy with those that are in crisis, which means we actually have to engage our being. That's hard work. It's hard to engage your heart with somebody who's mourning and willing to mourn alongside them. I think uh, Katie, my wife, I think she does this better than anyone I've ever known. In fact, maybe too well. Like if she, like whatever you're feeling, whatever commercial wants you to feel, she is feeling it. She is, can cry at the drop of a hat. But what's incredible more than that, if, if you are walking through something that's hard, like her heart is with you immediately. It takes me like a week to figure out what I'm feeling, you know, so I am awful at this. But if I want to love the way that Jesus has loved, Jesus loved with empathy. Jesus didn't solve anything. He could have solved everything. In fact, with Lazarus, he ends up solving that problem. But before he even solves them, this is a good message to most stereotypical men, right? We don't need to solve the problem. We need to actually stop and listen and engage our hearts if we want to love the way that Jesus loves us. Okay, those first three, those are pretty simple. So in your piece of paper, number three, who's someone, is there someone in your life that's grieving? Is there someone in your life that's in crisis that maybe God is inviting you to give up not only a, a pat on the hat, but to give them some of your heart, to mourn alongside them, to have empathy with them? Is there someone in your world that Jesus is inviting you to do that with? Now, those first three, they're hard. Not going to lie, they're, they're a challenge. It's, it's more than just loving your neighbors yourself. It's an invitation to love somebody the way that Jesus has loved us, right? To bless people without being seen, to see people who aren't seen and, and spend our political and social capital, to have empathy with those who are in crisis. Like that is like what a maturing, godly person does. And if you are just becoming a disciplined person, you're working out your walk with God, you can do these first three. These last two are impossible, these last two, I wish the Bible ended at verse 11. Because these last, I mean, chapter 11, these last two are graduate level love. 
Their love that we cannot do on our own. Their love that if we want to love the way that Jesus loved us, we actually have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We actually have to have Jesus shape us and mold us and heal us. It takes hard, hard spiritual work. But Jesus doesn't just say, love your neighbors yourself. He says, love one another the way that I have loved you. And so we're going to get to number four. Number four, like I said, this passage comes out of um, where Jesus, um, you know, is in the upper room and he's, and, and he's having this conversation with his disciples. But before he has this conversation with the disciples, what was customary is before they would come into the home, someone would wash their feet. And it was usually the servant of the house or the lowest or youngest disciple would be that person. And Jesus says this, that the evening meal was in process and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, if you read the Bible, you're like, that's a beautiful story. But back in Jesus' time, this was a very odd thing to do. And in fact, you know it's odd because Peter's like, no, you cannot wash my feet. Like, you're Jesus. You're the rabbi. Do not do this. And Jesus like, Peter, come on. I have to do it. He's like, fine, do it all then. Like, you know, it's, it was like, it is a big, big, big deal that Jesus the rabbi would take off his outer garment and he would get down on his knees and he would start to wash his disciples' feet. It's like, Peter... You numbskull, he washes his feet. John, my favorite, right? Thomas, he's going through the whole list. And he has to wash Judas's feet. Could you imagine? It wasn't washing Judas's feet going, man, here's this dirt ball, but I think God's going to do something with him and I'm going to have hope that he's going to do something someday. No, he knew the devil had already gone inside Judas. He'd already been betrayed. He already knew where this was leading. He already knew that this was his last night with his disciples. He was soon to be crucified because of this man. And here he is humbly before him, washing his feet. Like I said, this is graduate level. This is no joke godliness. What does it mean to know and love God and to love your neighbor the way that Jesus loved us? It means that we are to serve those who have wronged us. And I, I was thinking about it this week and I realized, I'm like, I'm such a good Christian because I don't have anybody in my life that I feel that way about. And then the more I thought about it, it's because I have managed to live my life in a way that if someone has wronged me, I close my vault on them, right? I emotionally go, you're done. You're not safe. You're not getting anywhere near the squishy of my heart. Peace out. That's what I do. And I manage to find people who have hurt me and then I change my behavior accordingly. So all of a sudden I stop going to that coffee shop. I stop going to that restaurant. I stop taking that route home so I have to drive past their house. Like I change my life so I don't have to interact and deal with people who have really wronged me. And so I go, oh, look, at I, I'm a good Christian because I don't need to serve people who have wronged me because there's no more of those people in my life. But if we're honest, there are people in our life who have wronged us who have wounded us at the depths of our being. And Jesus is inviting us in a master's level call to love them and to serve them. And I, God is only on weeks that I'm preaching. Because this, If this happened any other week, I would have behaved differently. But on this week, the week that I'm preaching, I'm going out to dinner and I go to this restaurant and I go to this place. Normally I don't go to this restaurant because the person who was wronged me and who I hate works there. And so I'm like, you know what? He's probably not working tonight, so I'm good. 
So we're eating dinner, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he's there. Oh, and I kind of do a little, try to look away. And my wife kind of does the look away and because we're not really good Christians. And sure enough, he comes over and he starts talking to us and he doesn't know anything's wrong because we're good Christians. We've closed the vault, but he doesn't know that like in our hearts, we're like shooting daggers at him. So he's having this conversation with us. Life is super great. And then he walks away and I just was like, oh, why do I have to preach this week? <laughs> and so it's the tiniest little step that I could muster. It took me a whole day, but the very next day I just, I texted him and said, hey man, it was great seeing you, praying for you, pray God's blessing on you and your family see you around. Like as a, such a blah text, but it cost me something fierce to actually engage and try to engage this person who had wronged me so bad. And so I think we just need to be honest. There are people who have wronged us. There are people who have crushed us. And Jesus, and, and it is a hard discipline. It is a gradual level discipline. If we want to love people the way that Jesus loved us, Jesus, while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. Jesus modeled that he washed the feet of Judas. If he washed the feet of Judas, then we got to learn to lean into and love and serve even those people that have wronged us. And I'm saying that as a hypocrite. So I just know that this is a teaching that we need to move towards. Okay. The last one is also hard. The last thing that we need to do is that we need to seek restoration. So at the very end of John, John chapter 21, um, Jesus, this is after the resurrection, and Jesus, you know, he rises from the dead, he meets his disciples, he teaches some people, he does some other teaching miracles, and, uh, but then he has this really incredible encounter. He goes to the beach to find Peter because Peter had thrown the towel. He had given up on being a follower of Jesus. Peter, right, he was Jesus' guy, and in front of everybody, he said, I wouldn't deny you, and sure enough, he denied Jesus three times. And on the third time he did it in front of this servant girl outside of the city gates by a fire. Like, like he had no reason, like to the, to, on the social ladder, on the lowest of the low, he still couldn't stand up for Jesus. And he humiliated himself. He burned Jesus. He wasn't even with Jesus in his time of need. And you know what? He just threw, he's like, I am done. I am out. He goes fishing. Not because like, he's like an old man, just likes fishing. He went to fishing because that was his job. He went back to his old life, went back to his job and he's fishing. And Jesus follows him, goes to the beach, sits down, makes a fire, and waits for Peter in the most incredible encounter of all of scripture. So in John chapter 21, Jesus and Peter have this interaction. He asked Jesus, he asked Peter, take Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says, yes. He asked him again, Simon, son of God, do you love me? And then he says, the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. I love this picture of Jesus because Jesus always works for restoration. We're human beings and we screw up all the time. We break things all the time. We break people all the time. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus, Peter did that. Jesus runs after Peter he gives him his time and he restores him back into being not just a disciple, but being the disciple, the rock on which Jesus ends up building his entire church. That's what Jesus does. And so when we say we want to love the way that Jesus loved, how did Jesus love? Jesus didn't just serve his enemies. Jesus longed for restoration. Jesus longed for broken relationships to come back together. One of the things I love about our denomination is that if me as your pastor royally screw up because of whatever reason, I make some horrible decisions. 
and I mean like the worst kind of decisions that you could imagine, if I did that, our denomination would come in and they would step in. And what's incredible is they wouldn't just step in and crucify me and fillet me and hide what I did so that, you know, so that the church didn't have a black eye, so I don't have a black eye and send me somewhere else. Or like, they wouldn't try to cover the problem. What they do is they have a whole department of people who their whole job is to bring restoration to pastors. It is the most incredible thing. And so if I screwed up in the most royal way possible, this grouping of people would come in and they would intervene with me, with my family, with you, and they would work towards restoration. And I've had an opportunity to sit on a couple of those uh, committees with a couple of different pastors. And it is an incredible and humbling honor to realize that there is this, as a denomination, as a structure, people work with pastors to try to help relationships be restored, relationships with family, relationships with the church, relationships with their community. And sometimes that means that that person can't be a pastor anymore, but it's not because they can't be a pastor and now they have a a scarlet letter on their name and they're sent out into the big, big bad world. It's just that might not be the right fit for the things that have gone on and for who they are and what's going on in their life. However, they're always, always, always working towards restoration. And all the people that have gone through that process have achieved restoration and it is the most beautiful thing. And for anyone who's been in a broken relationship, a relationship has gone so south, you know it is not just an easy thing. Jesus is in, I'm going to forgive you. It's all going to be okay. The work of restoration is hard, hard, graduate level work. But that's the work that Jesus is inviting us into. So we don't just love our neighbors ourselves. To selfless love, the love of godliness is this love that loves one another the way that Jesus loved us. The way that Jesus loved us is that we bless people without them even having to know that we bless them. That we spend our political capital on people who may not even deserve it, but deserve it because they're humans made in the image of God. We love the way that Jesus loved us and we sit heavy with people who are in crisis. We give of our hearts we really want to love the way that Jesus loves, then we need to learn to serve our enemies, to bless them, and to seek restoration with the relationships that are broken. And like I said, those last two, that is graduate level Christianity there. But just because it's hard, just because it seems impossible, just because it's out of reach, that does not mean that that is what we need, that we just don't do it. It means that we get on the path and we take our baby steps towards Christ. The whole thing of being a Christian is not that we, this is the benchmark and then we work really hard to do it. The whole thing with being a Christian is that we move towards Christ, that we worship Christ, that Jesus gets bigger and bigger and we love him and we worship him. And the Holy Spirit has more and more access to mold us and to shape us and to mature us. It is a process. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about becoming the people God has called us to be in Christ. I don't know why Jeff keeps giving me these hard ones. I want to just do like... High five your neighbor next time or something. But that maybe we'll see. So I would like to invite us to do this, to try this this week. We're trying to do this thing in Lent to not just talk about what are these godly characteristics that we want to lean into, but what are some spiritual disciplines that help us along the road? Because the way in which we grow towards Christ is having these spiritual disciplines. They're things that Christians have done for thousands of years that have grown their faith. It doesn't make you a better Christian. It doesn't mean that God loves you better. What it does is it simply allows you to build the spiritual muscles, to build the the Holy Spirit, access to the Holy Spirit inside of you so that you can then become those things. So we looked at fasting um, a couple weeks ago, the prayer of examine last week, and this week um, we're going to talk about scripture reading. If you want to be the person who is moving towards Christ, then we need to be people who read scripture. 
And what's funny is we think, well, we know scripture. And if you know the golden rule, love your neighbors yourself, you're set. But you're actually missing a ton of what God has for you by not recognizing what does it really mean to love your neighbors yourself. When you read scripture, you realize, oh no, it's not just love your neighbors yourself, but it's a new commandment that Jesus gives. What is this new commandment? To love one another as I have loved you. Well, what does it mean for you to love others? Well, we read scripture because scripture clarifies who God is, clarifies what love means and invites us to do that. And so for this week, um, I would encourage you to read the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters, three chapters a day. I timed it. It's four minutes. Four minutes. That's if you just wanted to get the baseline done. But if you're willing to take it even to one more level, then I would encourage you um, to ask these questions along the way. Um, there's all sorts of different tricks of, of, of ways to get your brain to think about things. I'm not that smart. And so I like these three simple questions when I read Scripture. So if you spend your morning... You read through John chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3. And then you ask these questions. What does it say? What does it say is simply just a pause. Instead of just going, I read it, I'm done, move on. You actually have to stop. Like, like when you're in fourth grade and do a summary. Wait, what did I actually read? What's going on? Who's involved? What just happened? Like you have to have some baseline understanding of what just happened. What does it say? But then what does it mean? Why was this story written? Right? This story has been preserved for thousands of years for a reason. Why was it written? What is the author trying to say? What is God trying to say and trying to communicate to you through this interaction and through this story? But we don't want to just build up our, our intellectual life. We also want to put our faith into practice. And so the last one is now what? Now, based on what I've read, I understand what it says. I understand what it means. What am I supposed to do with this passage of scripture that you've put in front of me? And ask God to give you the, the, the strength and the courage to actually put it into practice. And that simple practice of daily reading scripture, daily reading scripture, three chapters a day in one whole week, you've read the whole gospel of John. Even if you just read one chapter a week, right? In half a week, you've read through all of Philippians. Like you make progress by even just chipping away at it. The only time it doesn't work is when we don't do it at all. This whole thing about what we're trying to do as a church is to be on this path towards Christ. One step in front of the other, moving towards Christ, encouraging each other to be all that God has for us. Well, may God have mercy on you and me as we seek to love one another the way that Jesus loved us. Gosh, may we have the maturing love that Jesus invites us to have. Would you stand with me? Let me pray for us. And then at the end of our prayer time, we'll, we'll end it with the Lord's Prayer. So let's put our hands out and pray together. Heavenly Father and our gracious God, I'm so challenged by this new commandment that you've given us to love one another as you have loved us. And for as, as impossible as it seems, I'm so thankful that you're a God who doesn't just tell us to do things, but that you model it. That you are God, you are worthy of all worship, all of creation deserves to bow down before you, yet you entered creation and you took on the form of a servant. You modeled to us what it meant to love one another. So God, give us the courage and the strength to do the same. And God, I pray we wouldn't be people that would simply white-knuckle the rules, but that we would be people who are transformed by you. And I know on that list of five people that you might have brought to mind that there's one or two of them that we are just thinking there's no way. So God, I just pray that you give us the courage to just lean in, take a baby step, be willing to at least wrestle with you about it. For you are patient and long-suffering. 
So don't only be patient with us, God, but spur us on, empower us with your spirit. And may we be the church that has the reputation that loves others the way that you love us. For your scripture says, for by in that, all the world will know that we are your disciples.